had a man uh, say to me some time ago, uh, probably been three or four years now, I was talking to him about uh, Christians and Christianity, and he made the comment, he said, people fall away from, from following Christ because they don't have a good relationship with him. They don't have a personal relationship with him. And that kind of has, re- although I took really no action at the time, that, that comment has resonated with me uh, through the next few years. And so I got to thinking, well, how does one have a personal relationship with Jesus? And one key component of that then has to be to know Him, to understand Him. And where do we do that? We do that in what we know as the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And, and studying those books and becoming and reading about the events of Jesus' life. And reading about the things that He said and He taught. And applying those things to our lives. That's how we, uh, that's how we build that relationship so one uh, doesn't fall away. I, the words that, you know, the first song that was led this, mo- this morning uh, by Brother Coulter... Uh, that says, I keep falling in love with Him. I guess if you had to say, you know, what's the objective of the lesson this morning, that title would summarize it. That's what we want. We want to make it to where it's not just a short love. It's not just a love that we have for an hour or for a day or for a month, but we have it year after year after year, and it's renewed you know, we were lucky enough this week to uh, witness uh, David and Jordan's wedding and kind of be part of that and, and, and celebrate their love for one another. But we'll celebrate their love 30 or 40 or 50 years from now when they're still uh, in love. And that's what we want with, with uh, as far as a relationship with our Savior. We want that kind of relationship. So in looking at, the, looking at this then... In trying to do that, I've entitled this lesson Jesus 360 because we want to gain a perspective of Jesus that I believe the Gospels provide and the Gospels provide a unique angle. Each Gospel provides a unique angle and perspective of the life of Jesus. And so we're going to look at why do we have four Gospels? Well, we might ask some questions that maybe some people would have. Uh, why, why are there four accounts instead of one cumulative account? We might say that, well, and I'd understand it better if it was just one continuous writing and just, just put it all in that one book. And all this, you know, it was recorded in Matthew but not in Mark. And then here we find it in Luke. Well, why is that? Uh, wouldn't it make more sense to do it in a way that was just one comprehensive volume? Another question that we might ask is, why do two of the Gospels contain a genealogy and the others don't seem to contain that? And those genealogies that are contained are different. And then, why do accounts of the same event provide slightly different accounts, different details, and why, do they, why does the dialogue slightly different from one to another? And then finally, why are some uh, events recorded in detail in some of the Gospels and they're completely omitted in the others? Um, 
when I was a young boy and growing up, and, and I asked the question, well, why are there four accounts? And I think it was my mother that said, well, it was kind of like four witnesses, you know, that, that were there and they saw the events, but they would re- remember and record them differently. But you know, I, I don't believe that. I, I reject that idea because I believe that the writer of the Gospels was the Holy Spirit. And he merely used these men to pen what he wanted to write. So then, why the differences? Let's look at, look at some... Uh, uh, the idea of a fourfold division of things in the Scriptures is really maybe more common than you might think. Uh, there is a terminology that's, that started in the Old Testament about, G, about a branch. About a branch. And I want you to notice there's four different references to a branch. First of all, a branch of David. We see this passage found in Jeremiah 23. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. Notice the the link here between David and king. And keep that in your mind because I think that's going to be important as we move forward. The next reference is to that of my servant. We find this passage in Zechariah. It says, For behold, uh, I am bringing forth my servant... The branch. You know, you think about a branch and off of a tree, and you may have different components or different uh, branches off of branches. And so that's the idea here. And then we have, the, have this reference about the man. Behold, the man wh- whose name is the branch, from his place he shall branch out, And he shall build the temple of the Lord, again in Zechariah. And then finally, we find this reference to beautiful and glorious. And it says in in Isaiah chapter 4, it says, In the day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. And so there's four references in the Old Testament to this thing called the branch. And I think we're going to see a strong correlation here as we move forward into the New Testament. But let's, let's look at uh, Revelation chapter 4 and verse number 7. We find a beast that has four heads. And this, four, this is going to have four heads. One head is that of a lion. We remember that uh, in Revelation 5 and verse number 5, it says, Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. That's a reference to Jesus Christ. So we see there's a bit of a correlation between King David, the branch, and this thing called the lion. My servant. And we, so we find that there is one of the heads of the beast was that of a calf. Now, what we think, what they term, use the terminology of a calf, we would use of an oxen or a beast of burden. So that's the idea we want to get here. And that links up with the idea of my servant. And then, of course, the other head was that of a man. So we have a head of a lion, a head of a calf or an oxen, a head of a man. And then finally, we have that of a, 
of a flying eagle. So that's the kind of a four-fold four, uh, divisions that we see. And it, it's a pretty common thing through Scripture. We could look at other examples. Uh, the veil of the tabernacle had four different colors. It was, it was hung from four different loops. So you can, the, it's just uh, throughout the Scripture you will see that. There's some others as well. So let's then move to the Gospels. And what is the purpose of each Gospel? And I think we're going to find as we move forward that one is going to describe Jesus as the servant of God. Another one is going to describe Him as the Son of God. Another one is describing him as the promised king. And then finally, another is going to describe him as the son of man. So again, we see this fourfold uh, division here as we move into the New Testament. And I, I would say to you that if, if we, we, we need to go no farther than the genealogy to really make the link and see which one is which. Let's, let's start with Matthew. In the Gospel of Matthew, we find a genealogy. And the genealogy is, it, it starts at Abraham. Now, most people, especially a Jew, if you were a Jew and you said, who's the father of our nation? Everyone would say Abraham. Abraham was the father of the Jews. So, this... In this gospel, we find in Matthew chapter 1, the, the genealogy begins with Abraham, and it, me, it moves through David. Why is David significant? Because he was a king. Now, he wasn't the first king, but we remember that Saul's kingdom was overthrown, and David's was put in his place, and that kingdom would then go forward and would be uh, forever. And it runs through Joseph. Now... That's an interesting point too. And I want to talk about that a little bit because um, in olden times, in, in Hebrew times, you would have never traced the genealogy through the woman. Even though we recognize that the physical father of Jesus was not Joseph, but he, he was the adopted son and he grew up in his house. And so that's the genealogy that would have been important uh, for anyone living in that time. And so we see that, that, uh, that Matthew's gospel records this from a Abraham and moving forward. Now, in Luke's gospel, it's just the opposite. It's still through Joseph, which again at first was strange to me because one would think that it would be through Mary. But since the woman at that time, that wasn't really something you would do. That would be very odd to a, a Jew to see that. So it was recorded again through Joseph, but it didn't. It, it starts at, at Joseph and moves backwards. And where does it end? It moves all the way back to, to Adam himself, because of the purpose of the book. Okay, let's let's. I would submit to you that based on the purpose of the book, that John, the Gospel of John, does have a genealogy. The Gospel of John does have a genealogy, and here it is. John 1 in chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, that's speaking of Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In other words, from his perspective, he always was. 
And so that's the genealogy you need to understand as far as the purpose of the Gospel of John. And then finally, the Gospel of Mark has the exact appropriate genealogy for one that's going to fill the role that you see that Mark is going to fill. Let's go ahead and to uh, share that. Matthew is going to show Jesus. Matthew was specifically written to the Jews. Specifically written to the Jews. And it's going to be about the promised king. That's the purpose of Matthew. In the book of Luke, we find that he's going to portray Jesus as the Son of Man. And in the Gospel of John, we're going to see his character as more the Son of God. So, if you think about the idea of in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God, if your purpose is to show him as the Son of God, all of the the human lineages that you might trace are, are inconsequential. It doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. And so then we might ask, well, why does Mark not contain a genealogy? Well, the answer is, he was a servant. Jesus was a servant. So from the the vantage point of of a servant, genealogy is insignificant, isn't it? A servant is just a servant. It doesn't matter. Uh, You know, that's really... Genealogy is more of something for royalty, not something for just a common servant. And so from the standpoint that Jesus was a servant... And that's what we're going to see from the Gospel of Mark, that no genealogy is the appropriate genealogy. All right, let's look at some characteristics. First of Matthew, we see the wise man coming from the east, seeking he that was born king of the Jews. Isn't it interesting here that instead of saying seeking the Savior of the world, he doesn't say that. Seeking he that was born king of the Jews. We find that is the only of the four writers to talk about Jesus' trip into and out of Egypt. Now, that was, why is that significant? Well, first of all, you remember where the children of Israel came from. They came out of bondage in Egypt. So it makes sense, it's in, in essence a foreshadowing, that their king would come forth out of Egypt as well. In addition to that, that was one of the signs. So if you're, if you're looking for some authentication that Jesus was the Christ, look at the book of Matthew. Look at the book of Matthew. It's going to tell you that. And one of the examples, one of the, the marks that had to be, one of the marks of authentication was that he would have to come out of Egypt. You won't find that in the Gospel of Luke. You won't find that in the Gospel of Mark. You won't find that in John. It's the only account that contains the Sermon on the Mount in its entirety. Now, granted, there are some of the teachings that are repeated in some of the other Gospels, but we find here that it's the laws of the kingdom. Jesus moves to an elevated place on on a mountain and He preaches to a group that's down below Him. So He's in this elevated uh, position as He does this. And the author of the book was the only one of the four that holds an official position. He He was a tax collector in the Roman government. So he had some understanding of, and of course, again, I know that the Holy Spirit could have used anybody to write it, 
But I believe that he specifically chose Matthew because of his role as an official in the Roman government. Because he's describing here a kingdom. There are more quotes from the Old Testament in the book of Matthew than in all the other Gospels combined. Christ is referred to as a king 12 different times. Seven times he's addressed as the son of David. Why is that significant? Because the kingdom rests on David. It had to be from the lineage of David. And again, that was a sign. You see, that, that was, again, a stamp of authentication. He's worshipped ten times, only mentioned once in the other Gospels. And it's the only Gospel to mention the church. Why? Because the church is the kingdom. The church is the kingdom. And so, when you mention the church, you're really talking about the kingdom. Where's the most appropriate place for that to be? In the, in the Gospel of Matthew where he's talking about Jesus being the promised king and him setting up his kingdom, the Sermon on the Mount, using three chapters to explain basically the laws and the tenets that this kingdom would be based upon. And then we find his triumphant entry into Jerusalem in uh, Matthew chapter 21. Uh, Jesus' tone is often authoritative, and uh, when he deals with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, it's sometimes very judgmental because he, he, will, he will say, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees. Because he's speaking from a position of authority as you would expect a king to do. Now when we get to the Gospel of Mark, again, it's not that Mark is not saying that these things didn't happen, but his perspective is different. It's just like if I was looking at Jim here and I'm looking at him from this angle and I turn and I go back here and I see him from a little different angle, well, my, script, my, my description would be slightly different. And so that's the case of, of, of the Gospel of Mark. Mark is going to look at Jesus from the standpoint of him being a servant, a servant of God. So we remember that there is no genealogy. There's no mention of his birth. Doesn't matter, right? He's a servant. Only four parables. Now, in the Gospel of Matthew, there's parable after parable. Now, you, most of them start how? The kingdom of heaven is likened unto. Well, why not here? Because the purpose of, Matthew, or of Mark is not about the kingdom. It's about service. So we find only four parables, all of them service-related. Uh, not referred to, Jesus is never referred to as a king except in scorn or derision, so to make fun of him more or less. Not as, not as a true king. Sixteen times he's referred to as master. Master meaning teacher. Well, the, the biggest way that Jesus served was how? He did heal. He did some of those miracles, that's true. But his primary service was that of a teacher. And so we find that, um, that we, we're, you're going to see that. Um, it was written by a servant. It's interesting that uh, he's also known as John Mark. But John is the Jewish name. Mark is the Gentile name. So the Gospel of Mark is typically understood to be addressing the Gentile world. Think about if you're, if you're a Gentile in the first century after the death of Jesus, is it really going to impress you about him being um, 
the son of David and all of that, is that going to be important to someone that's outside of the the Jewish family and doesn't have that understanding of Jewish history? No. That's not going to, that wouldn't have made, that wouldn't have been something that would have resonated with them. So Mark's approach is more to the Gentiles. And then the term gospel is used eight different times. Why? Because Jesus was the bearer of that good news. We see that used in the Gospel of Mark, even though it's the shortest of the Gospels. It's, uh, he uses challenges to teach rather than rebuke. So rather than refining this judgmental tone and authoritative tone, typically what you see with him is more of a... An, he uses it as an opportunity to teach. Now, again, I'm not saying that Mark is trying to reject the idea that Jesus said those things that were judgmental and authoritative. It's just that he did not record them because they were not central to his purpose. And then we find in the Gospel of Mark the ministry of the hand. We're going to just real quickly go through these. We find that Jesus did this. So he came and he took, and it's Peter's mother-in-law in this case, by the hand he lifted her up. She was healed of her fever, and she served them. Jesus moved with compassion, stretched out his hand, and touched a leper in this case. And he said, I am willing, and be cleansed. So we see Jesus stretching forth his hand. Then he took the child by the hand and said to her, "Little, Little girl, I say unto you, arise. And immediately the girl rose. Then he came to Bethsaida and he brought a blind man and they brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. So he took the blind man by the hand. So it's kind of the ministry, a true service that you find in the Gospel of Mark. Alright, let's look at the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke is the attempt to try to show that Jesus, the Son of God, came down to this earth and He walked where you walk. He dealt with circumstances that you deal with. In this gospel, you're going to find that He's referred to as the Son of Man 26 different times. He's frequently seen in prayer. Why is that significant? Well, a Son of Man should be in prayer. He's, he's in a low position. He's come from there to here and he's talking back to his father that's still in heaven. The story of Jesus at age 12 is revealed here. No other gospel talks about it. Why? Because it's, it's portraying Jesus and the human element. Details about Jesus and John the Baptist and their birth are here more than the other gospels much more detailed here than we find in the other Gospels. It was written by a physician. One that would know about the human body. The story of the prodigal son is found here. The story of the Good Samaritan found only here. These contrasting the relationship are the way that man deals with things and the way that God deals with things. It's given his age when he actually starts his ministry. We don't find that in the other Gospels. Why? Because of their purpose. The the phrase, a certain man, 
is used 12 times. Six times in all the other Gospels put together. So it's, it's contrasting the life of man with... with the, it's really the Son of Man with the sons of men. In other words, God as He walked the earth versus us as we walk the earth. The, uh, the state of man's soul is, is brought out here. We find the examples of Lazarus in, in Luke chapter 16, that whole account at the end of that chapter. And then again, we see the thief on the cross. The Gospel of John. John reminds us that Jesus is God. He's the Son of God, but He is God. And John reminds us of that. It's written by the apostle that was closest to Jesus. He's referred to as the bread of life. And Jesus, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. He's found in prayer only once. It's right before the crucifixion in John chapter 17. Where really, if you read the tone of that, you recognize that he's praying to his Father as if he and the Father are one. And he even says that in that passage. The Word, he's, he, the, the description of him is the Word. Well, what is the Word? The Word is a manifestation. It's a, it's a showing, it's a revealing of God. He revealed himself to man through his Word the life of Jesus. There are no parables in the Gospel of John. Why? Because the Gospel of John is God revealed. Parables are God concealed to a certain extent because they were written based on an analogy. That's not the, that's not the tone of the Gospel of John. I and my Father are one. There's no baptism a God doesn't need to be baptized. He's sinless. But as a son of man, we see it in these other Gospels. Why? Because he wanted, he wanted us to see that example. But God needed no baptism. He needed no cleansing of sins. He needed no repentance. God seen in control. Look in this passage in John chapter 7 and verse 15. It, and there were people that were, that they wanted to take him. The Pharisees and Sadducees, they wanted to take Jesus and crucify him even, even then. But it said no man laid hands on him because they weren't able? No. Because his time, his hour was not yet come. You see, it shows that Jesus, that God was in control of this whole process. Not man. And then we have a whole list of titles from the Gospel of John. I'm just going to throw these up for you real quickly. He describes himself as the light of the world, the door, the resurrection of life. I am the true vine, the good shepherd, the bread of life. All these titles. We don't find this so much in the other Gospels. But here in the Gospel of John, we do. Why? Because his purpose was to show Jesus as the Son of the living God. Well, so understanding purpose can help us explain some differences in the Scriptures and, and have a context. You know, context can be everything, can it? Having the proper context can help us 
interpret Scripture. Properly know what God is telling us. And part of that context then is to understand what was the purpose of the writer. Well, let's look at these two accounts. You remember when, uh, when Jesus went into the wilderness and He fasted 40 days. Fasted 40 days and after that Satan came to Him and He tempted Him. Well, here's Matthew's account. There were, the, there were these temptations. And the first was that, he, that Satan came to him and said, Command that these stones be made into bread. The second one, he says, Cast yourself down. The third one, he says, offered, He offered the kingdoms of the world to, to Jesus. That's the order, right? The, the Gospel of Luke records it slightly differently. Look at, well, one is the same, but look at two and three. They're flipped. Why would that be? You know, if you don't think about the purpose, you might think that everything is listed chronologically and we have a discrepancy here. That, that basically Matthew and Mark, or Matthew and Luke here, were disagreeing with each other as to the order. I don't, find, I don't believe that's the case at all because, again, the Holy Spirit penned all these writings. The Gospel of Luke... I believe is the chronological order of, of really what happened. But if you look back at the Gospel of, of Matthew, if, you're, if the position is, is power, which it's about the right, that's, that was the, really the, the issue in Matthew is about, about his, his having authority and his having power. So Satan, the last temptation that would be revealed in Matthew's context would be the one that would be the greatest appeal. And the one of the greatest appeal to one that was seeking power would be to have him look out on the earth and, and, and see all these kingdoms and say, all these can be yours. So we find that is the last one that Matthew records because based on the purpose of his writing to show Jesus as the promised king, Jesus had to reject that he was going to be kingdom, king of the world and that he was going to be king of the eternal kingdom or the heavenly kingdom. And then, let's look at this real quickly. Jesus responds to his criticism for the disciples plucking ears of corn on the Sabbath day. In Matthew, Matthew, he says this, Have you not read what David said when he was hungry? And he and those who were with him, now they entered the house of God and, the, and ate the showbread which was not lawful for them to eat. Yet I say unto you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. He's, he is asserting his own authority here. In the Gospel of Mark, we don't see that. What Mark records is Jesus said that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. In the Gospel of Luke, he went on to heal a, a woman that had an infirmity for some 18 years. And when he was criticized about it, the Lord said, he said, hypocrite. He says, does not each one of you on the Sabbath loosen your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it away to water? See the difference in the, the response that was recorded based on the purpose of the writer. 
in the Gospel of John, it's the most telling, I think. It says, My Father worketh here too, and I work. In other words, as the Son of God, He wasn't really, He wasn't under the laws of the Sabbath. He was the Son of God, and because God always worked, so did He. Well, so what does this all mean to me? Well, first thing I want you to think about the Gospel of Matthew because he was the promised king and because he meets all of those areas of um, authentication, you can believe in him. You can trust him. That he was the promised king that would come. Because he was a servant, because he came from there to here and became a servant, you should be too. And because he was a man and he knows what it's like to live and to meet the challenges of this life and deal with the things that we deal with down here, he is the perfect advocate with the Father. We can trust that as in terms of, of having an advocate that can, can vouch for us and can, can explain to the Father exactly what it's like to be here and walk this earth, He's the perfect one. He's also the perfect example because He came here and He did it right. And then because He is God, I should praise Him. I should worship Him. I should recognize that He's not... He's not me. That my relationship, though, should be like a friend in one respect, should be one of great honor and reverence because Jesus is God. I believe the Holy Spirit had a challenge. The challenge was to write four different Gospels that could give us a 360 view of Him, but at the same time be where they were standalone. So that, for example, in the, in the first century, if you just received the Gospel of Matthew, the basic story of the Gospel is there. If you just received the Gospel of Luke, the basic story of the Gospel is there. There's enough on which to go. If you look through, here's what I did, I, I thought it would be interesting to do, is just find you a red-letter Bible and start in Matthew and read through. And just read, just read the writings of Jesus. Just read the red. Read what Jesus said. Read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Just reading the red. doesn't take that long to do. You will find a lot of similarities. You'll find a lot of the same phrases repeated, but you'll see slight differences in terminology, slight differences in things that He said. Again, why? Because of the purpose of the writer. I think, again, my goal would be that you fall in love with him over and over and over again. Have the kind of relationship with the Lord that doesn't last a day or a week or a month or just, you know, when you're hot. But it'll last you a lifetime because you fall in love with him over and over again. If we can help you in any way, we're going to offer a song of invitation. We would ask you to come forward as we stand and sing.